All right, we serve a risen Savior. All right. My name is Joel. I'm one of the elders here at Door of Hope Northeast. And it's my, my privilege and pleasure to read the scripture this morning. And so would you all stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Matthew 28. Uh, we're going to read verse 1 to 20. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the sea of the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going to go before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and, jo and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guards went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the, the Lord. You may be seated. Now, as I said earlier, my name's Cameron, and as I said earlier, it is legitimately an honor uh, to be worshiping with you all this morning. Um, it's Easter, and Easter's great. Easter's great. Uh, but Easter, like many things about Christianity, is dangerous. Uh, because Easter, it comes every year, you know. Um, I, I wore my slightly pink shirt today uh, to commemorate <laughs> the occasion. Uh, you know, you, you get your Sunday's best on. Um, you have kids, maybe you, maybe you go do an Easter egg hunt, or, or maybe you very vocally don't do an Easter egg hunt because it has, like, pagan origins or, you know, whatever. Um, but it's, it's a thing that, that, that comes up frequently. You know, it's, it happens every year. Uh, it's a thing, you know, and people, uh, you know, like Christmas or Advent season, it's one of those things where people will say, ah, oh, you know, I might, maybe I'll go to a church for Easter. And that's great. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Um, but, but anything in Christianity that, that, that comes at a risk of becoming routine, habit, um, kind of old hat, can, can become pretty corrosive. And it can, it can actually become very, very dangerous. Um, to make a connection, have you ever known someone that was a little, on the flip side, is a little too into something? You know, <laughs> like, you just couldn't quite understand, like, okay, this person's really into this thing, and I have no, I have no way into this. I don't know why this is so compelling to them, whatever. Um, I've been that person about many things. Many <laughs> family members, uh, 
my spouse, uh, even my kids, certainly friends uh, of, of many stripes have all uh, been a little bit befuddled by my enthusiasm for certain things at different times. Um, and I could mention all kinds of things, um, but <laughs> for some reason this one came to mind. I'm just going to go with it. Um, in terms of silly kind of pop culture things, and we have this about serious stuff, and we have it about silly stuff. This is a silly example. Um, there was nothing cooler in my world from about sixth grade to about eighth grade than the anime show Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> Any Dragon Ball Z fans? Quite a few. Yeah, okay, we're, we are meeting up after this watch party. Dragon Ball Z, I was like really into it, super cool, and I remember, I remember. Well, here's the principle. Anything that you're into, anything that you love, that isn't actually kind of rooted in sort of, sort of a deep love, if it's not... <laughs> If it's not widely popular, if it's not widely understood, if it's not found reasonable, if you don't really, really, really love the thing, just time and basic atrophy will remove that love from you. Um, for me, Dragon Ball Z, as much as I loved it, as soon as I remember, I remember getting on like the high school basketball team and suddenly like make, saying something about Dragon Ball Z and there's like seniors in the room, you know? And, and they're like, Whoa, what are you talking about? And you're like, oh, oh, that's not cool here. Okay, okay. And it's not that I didn't like Dragon Ball Z any less after, after uh, a scolding from, from the senior point guard. Um, it's just a reality. Your, 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 your love for something, your commitment to something can start to atrophy and wither if it's not scaffolded unless you really, 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 really love that thing. Unless you have a deep abiding love, whatever may come. Half loves and fads and curiosities will be driven, driven out of you uh, by limited time and urgent needs and a hierarchy of values and peer pressure or whatever else. That's just the way things go. Um, something, I think, that both Christians and non-Christians can agree on is this. We Christians, and I don't assume everyone in this room is a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I'm just so honored that you're here hanging out with us. That's wonderful. Um, but hopefully something we can all agree on is that Christians believe something really, really weird. <laughs> Almost unconscionably strange. Um, and, and it's not something that's just strange in our particular time and place in the city of Portland in the year 2022. Um, but it's something that has been found weird. It's never really sat comfortably in any culture at any time throughout human history. It's never sat comfortably alongside the expectations or the presiding beliefs or uh, the common values of any culture that it's come, come in contact with. We believe this. Hopefully, if you're a Christian, if you self-identify as a Christian, you believe this. That there was this Jewish carpenter turned religious teacher from this backwoods town, this Israelite town called Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago, give or take, who was publicly executed, and he was entombed, and then publicly was raised from the dead. And not just that, not just that, but that this reality validated the things that he taught, really crazy things that he taught, really scandalous things that he taught, validated the things he taught and the teachings and prophecies of this thing we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible that were laying the track to understand what his life and death and resurrection meant, that it confirmed his identity as this long-awaited Jewish Messiah, that he was actually the promised king of the kingdom of heaven and not just that, that he was the eternal son of God. We believe that by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, he gives us forgiveness for everything we've ever done wrong. That he gives us communion with God, like actual familial fellowship with, with this creator God of the universe that Jesus tells us exists and that he is part of. Gives us supernatural empowerment to increasingly conform our lives to his and one day, it means that we too will have that same victory over death that he had. 
We believe that because these things are true, everything about everything about everything about everything is different. In sum, that's weird. <laughs> that's weird. Those are crazy things to believe. And the longer you're a Christian, you can forget to your own spiritual detriment the wildness of a statement like that, that this is not normal. This is, there's nothing else, there's no other story like this that people cling to. I would wager <laughs> that when you really get self-conscious self to think about it, that for the people in this room who believe these things, that not a single one of us holds that belief because it's obvious or because it's comfortable or because it's natural. But at some, in some way, in ways unique probably to each one of us in this room, we believe that God has actually somehow illuminated our minds and brought us probably against our own wills to believe those things. So gathering for an Easter service, it's understandable. It's a wonderful thing to do on a Sunday morning. Give a little structure to your day. But believing, actually believing, like in your heart of hearts, in the resurrection of Jesus, is a scandal. It's a scandal. So we're here today to retell the story, to force ourselves to remember it afresh, and to celebrate it together as a community. But may we not do it as just, yeah, once again, that thing that we do. But may we let the weirdness and the weight and the glory of it sit on us properly. To do that, we're going to look at the, the last chapter of the gospel according to Matthew that Joel read for us. We're going to look at it in three sections. We're going to see in those three sections three things. One, we're going to examine the reality of the resurrection. Two, consider that there were alternative stories for what happened with the empty tomb, alternative stories for the resurrection. And three, the good news that the resurrection brings. So let's just jump in. Verses 1 through 10, right there. It's already been read, but what we see here is that it was dawn on Sunday. Mary Magdalene and another Mary went to the tomb of Jesus. So Jesus has been publicly crucified. And he was buried. He's put in this little cave, a stone put in front of it. The other gospels tell us there were a few other women. There was, a, there was a larger group than just these two that went, but Matthew just focuses on these two. And we, there's all kinds of like category-breaking supernatural things that we're meant to see here. We're meant to see like, this is not normal. And, it's, and it's, not, it's not trying to tell you that this is like spiritual allegory for, you know, something very like subtle that happened and very just like abstract. This is real crazy, crazy claims that are being made. That there was an earthquake and then there was like an angel shining like lightning. His clothes turned brightest white you could ever imagine. And that this giant stone had been rolled away. And then there's just this angel shining forth, just chilling on a stone. He's just sitting there. It's weird. <laughs> He's just sitting there. Uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, let's say it like that. The angel's just sitting there, shining forth on the stone. And the angel says, Jesus is not here. He's risen. And... These women, these two women here, but we know there's a larger group of them, but we'll just think about these two as we talk about it. These two women, they come face to face with the reality that this man that they had just, a day and some change before, seen beaten, bleeding, crucified, eventually dead, and eventually buried, was now alive. He was now alive. The angel says he's risen, but they go on, and Jesus then appears to them. So they're, they're probably thinking, this is insane, but then Jesus appears, and he has a conversation with them. He says, greetings. He says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And we see that he who they had seen beaten beyond a shred of recognition was now alive and well before them, speaking with them. And elsewhere in the Bible, Matthew doesn't flesh this out a whole bunch, but elsewhere in the Gospels and, and elsewhere, we see that the, this wasn't a mirage. It's not claiming that they, they saw just like a, a vision of him or um, his spirit standing there, as, though that would be supernatural and amazing. They say, no, he was there bodily, physically, that people touched Jesus. He walked with them. He ate with them. Certain people said, hey, can I have some of that food? <laughs> and they gave him food and he ate the food. His resurrection was physical. It's real. People could touch him. Thomas could put his hands in his side where, though he was no longer bleeding and disfigured, he still had the wounds of the cross. 
It's very strange. None of this is normal. And sometimes we come to miracles like this in the Bible and we assume that the biblical authors or even the characters featured in the stories are just sort of like unfazed by all these things that you're like, oh, well, yeah, that was a different time, you know? Usually we, it's one of two reasons. One, it was a different time. And so, you know, like maybe you, you take it as like, oh, I mean, read the Bible. Miracles are happening all the time. Like the bibl- characters in the biblical world, they were just like, oh, yeah, a miracle here, a miracle there, parting of the Red Sea, whatever. But that's not actually the case, you know? Thousands of years of history are chronicled in the Bible, and, and really, if you th- the, the miracles kind of cluster around a few key events when God is up to big things, validating particular things that he's doing in the world. So, no, 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 this, this was not something that would be commonplace, certainly not a resurrection like this. There was nothing like this. Number two, we might think well, the ancient people were just stupid and gullible. They didn't have modern science. They didn't have sort of uh, the intellectual revolution that uh, the Enlightenment and, and, and all the philosophical developments downstream of the Enlightenment have brought to us. They didn't have the kind of critical thinking skills that people like you and I have today. They're just idiots. So yeah, they were tricked, tricked by these claims that something like this could happen, but we know better now, of course. We don't have time to unpack all that or refute all that right now, but I would just submit to you that neither of these things are true. We're meant to see the resurrection not as a commonplace miracle, one of many that these people would just see all the time, but as something that terrified everyone who came in contact with it until that terror was given over to joy at what the possibilities could, could mean. And as we read on, just a second, we'll see. It wasn't that, <laughs> that this sat comfortably or that they weren't critical or that they didn't have categories for refuting something like this or the possibility that they might be scammed or whatever. It's just simply not the case. We're meant to see that they would see this as the most outlandish, impossible thing anyone could dream up if they had not seen it with their own eyes. Sometimes we see something in the world so immense that our whole understanding of the world has to expand in order to accommodate the new fact. These things happen in, on, on a big scale and as, as like scientific revolutions happen. Um, think of something like, like Nicolaus Copernicus proposing the heliocentric theory of the universe, which he, he didn't know a lot relative to what we know now, but he, he posited that it's not uh, the sun that revolves around the earth, but it's just the other way around. The Earth and the other planets of our solar system revolve around the sun. And if that's true, then suddenly, like, our little planet's place in the world suddenly feels very, very different. And it's everything we thought is wrong. Utterly category-breaking, but those kinds of things happen in big concepts of physics and science and all those sorts of things. But it also happens, think about the first time that you discovered that someone loves you. Like in the self-sacrificing, self-giving, desiring your good at the deepest level kind of way. And I don't just mean romantically. This, this could be a parent. This could be like your closest friend that's been with you through thick and thin. But those moments where you realize like this person actually wants my deepest good and they're committed to me no matter what. That will reorient your life. I hope that's happened for you. Sadly, it doesn't happen for everyone. Sadly, not even with with our parents or whatever, some of the time. But we have these things that that, that make the world become a fundamentally different place. The world has to expand to make space for this new fact. And this this, this is what this was. The women's response here indicates that's the experience they were having. It says they experienced fear and then joy and then worship. Jesus had really come back to life, and if this had actually happened, then everything they knew would now have to to stand in relationship to this fact. And the first response is fear, and then joy, and then worship. I think that's appropriate. But it's not just a a dead man walking, it's a loving friend returning returning to life. And and, and remember, this is Jesus' first appearance is to these faithful women. He's gonna appear later to the unfaithful men. 
But the, the picture we get in Jesus' final, final hours is that his closest disciples, the 12, Judas obviously betrayed, he's out of the picture, but the other 11 deserted Jesus. They did not hang around. Once they saw the way things were going, they kind of got, got out of dodge and let things play out. Even though Peter promised Jesus ahead of time, no, I will not deny you, I will not deny you, I will not deny you. He did three times. And the others hid in fear. But we get the picture of these women, this group of women who remained faithful. They, they, they remained near Jesus. And they're the ones who go and check out the tomb on the third day. And Jesus, he could have appeared to anyone first, right? He could have appeared to anyone, but he chose in his love and in his graciousness and his mercy and his goodness to appear. He sought these, these women out. What a privilege. They were the first ones to see the resurrected Lord by his design. Tim Keller writes this. You, lots of people have made this case. It's, it's kind of uh, well, well attested to, but I, I like the way he put it. He says uh, in his book, Reason for God, each gospel states that the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection were women. Women's low social status meant that their testimony was not admissible evidence in court. There was no possible advantage to the church to recount that all the first witnesses were women. It could only have undermined the credibility of the testimony. The only possible explanation for why women were depicted as meeting Jesus first is that they really had. N.T. Wright argues that there, there, there would have been an enormous pressure on the early proclaimers of the Christian message to remove this from the story, to remove the testimony of the women, to say that, no, maybe it was Peter that saw Jesus first or whatever. But they didn't. They let the truth ring. Jesus not only is, is unconcerned about the low social status of these women being his first witnesses, but he actively chooses them to be the ones that he reveals himself to first. They become effectively the first evangelists to go and tell the rest of the disciples who are cowering, he's going to meet you in Galilee. He's going to meet you. We've seen him. And then he, he says, don't be afraid. Jesus sees their fear and he responds with, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. Resurrection truly is the ultimate answer to fear. And then he says, go and tell. And they do. The implication is that they do. But the story goes on. So that's first. That's, that's the story of the resurrection. That's, it's, it's a claim that is that's pretty wild. And... It's not something uh, that we can just say, oh, that's a nice little kind of spiritual allegory or something. What the Bible is claiming is that they saw him, they touched him, they saw him eat, they saw him in the flesh. He appeared to over 500 witnesses. And each of the, <laughs> the New Testament authors were leaving little footnotes, old, first century footnotes uh, of people's names who saw him and what town they were from and who their kids were so that people could read that and go and ask, did you see Jesus in the flesh? Yes, I did. That's what's being claimed. Let's move on. Number two, we see an alternate story break out here. Alternate story for the resurrection. Matthew breaks from this main story. Jesus is alive to tell this little story uh, <laughs> of what happened when the religious leaders and the guards heard the news. So the guards were afraid for their lives because if, if it found... If, when word gets out that, oh man, like they didn't actually guard the tomb of such a sensitive uh, crucifixion victim, um, they might lose their lives over this. So they're afraid. They were tasked with making sure no funny business happened to Jesus' body. But note that the religious leaders, they didn't seem particularly interested in what happened to Jesus. They're not sitting there going, oh, this is amazing. This, wow, they instantly start concocting a scheme, concocting a scheme, fabricating a story to discredit the Jesus movement. And we do well to remember, sometimes people reject a belief in the resurrection because of sincere conviction. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've thought about Jesus. Maybe you've read the Gospels. Maybe you've read a couple books kind of pro and, you know, for and against uh, an argument for the resurrection. And you've weighed the facts and you've said, I just don't believe it. It just doesn't have the ring of truth to me. And though I might want to believe it, as we all know, you can't just force yourself to believe something. That's fair. But <laughs> there are other people who reject the resurrection, not out of sincere conviction, but sometimes just simply because they don't want it to be true. They're invested otherwise, and they self-consciously choose to promote a lie 
over the truth. What we see here is that from day one, from day one, there were competing stories about the meaning of the empty tomb. And we should know the empty tomb isn't really disputed by anybody. Um, there, there's, you know, almost every other religious leader, if, if they died, their, their, their burial site becomes a memorial and it's, it's a place that receives kind of like, it gets dignified, it gets remembered, it gets visited, pilgr- pilgrimages go there. But that wasn't happening. No one at the time was suggesting that Jesus' body had actually been found. Formal historians writing decades later took the belief in the empty tomb for granted. And they didn't suggest any alternatives. And there really haven't been any serious attempts to account for Jesus' body in the centuries since. It's kind of a sidebar. But here we see the religious leaders inventing a story whereby Jesus' disciples stole the body and hid it. They knew they were concocting a lie, but, but many people have put this idea forward. That there was some sort of conspiracy theory that got the Christian movement off the ground. I just want to take a second to, to look at a couple of these stories. Um, so one is, one is that the disciples, you'll hear this sometimes, that the disciples were deceived by Jesus, who somehow survived the cross. Um, the idea is that, yes, he went to the cross, as the historians write about, but gosh, we've got to figure out how people went from Jesus on a cross to this Christian movement that transformed the entire Roman world within a couple of centuries. So what, oh, well maybe, Jesus, yeah, he went to the cross, but then he, you know, when they brought him down, he wasn't actually dead. So he appeared to the disciples later and they bought, oh, he's back from the dead, but really he had just survived. I think that's a solution more outlandish than the problem, personally. Um, to see, if you know anything about crucifixion, you know that there's, there's no way someone could be mistaken for alive and well after it. Maybe alive by a thread but disfigured and limping and like, how is Jesus gonna get to Galilee to meet them, you know, miles away and so on and so forth. It just strikes me as, as it's, it's the kind of the only the thing, you only hear that on those weird like Discovery Channel documentaries about Jesus that come out, you know, every year around Easter. I'm like, all right, we've got the real scoop here. I don't, I don't think a lot of time needs to be spent on that. Number two, one that you hear is that the disciples were deceived by something like a mass hallucination. Okay. Jesus really died, was really buried, but, you know, they saw something, but, you know, it wasn't malicious. They weren't making up a lie or whatever. Maybe it was some sort of, like, mass hallucination, and they were all so fired up about Jesus and really believed he was coming back that, like, I don't know, they kind of willed the image into existence, and they convinced themselves that it was true. But I, I, again, I have to say that the public nature of these claims really make that hard, hard to believe. In the span of world religions, I'm not aware of any that have the religious leader die and come back to life, here's the crucial part, and appear. It's one thing to say, yeah, he's alive, we don't see him, you know, we don't know where he is, but trust us, he's alive. It's another for him, as the Bible, biblical accounts say, for 40 days to be amongst people, eating and talking and hanging out and showing up and being around. It's, re- it's the kind of claim, when Paul is before uh, the Roman authorities in the book of Acts, he says, these things were not done in a corner. Go ask around. What's really crazy about the resurrection of Jesus is that it's uniquely falsifiable. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, there are a lot of people that they could go ask and say, did you see Jesus? No, okay, case closed. Case closed, these were publicly done. It is the wildest thing. Even something like Islam and, and you know, this divine giving um, to Muhammad of, of the Quran, like it's, this, it's these ideas, so many religions have this idea where, you know, the religious leader, he goes and he's like secretly in like a cave or something and he comes out and he's like, hey, God told me this. You could say maybe that's true, maybe that's not true, but <laughs> there's no way to falsify that, right? Okay, God told you privately that, I guess I'll take your word for it. Christianity is the only one where you've got some, these people saying, he appeared. He appeared. And go ask Jerry down the street. He was there. I was there. You don't believe me? Okay, go ask Steve. Go ask Beth. Go ask whoever. Those are not first century names for the most part. (laughs) But the idea of a mass hallucination being behind this, it seems really, really like a stretch. Third, last one we'll talk about is the idea that 
what, this is what these guys are getting at, that the disciples engineered a mass conspiracy. They knew Jesus didn't rise, but they were too invested in, the, in him and his kingdom and his messiahship that they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna pull the wool over everyone's eyes and do this. To which I would just say the disciples, including these 12 who had spent years ministering with Jesus, including his own siblings, including Jesus' own enemies later, like Paul the Pharisee, who was so offended by the Christian message that he was there actively persecuting and killing Christians. Each of these unlikely people came to believe in the resurrection and lordship of Jesus to the point of being willing to die. And I don't know what it would take for someone's brother or sister, like actual brother or sister to decide, yeah, my brother was the son of God. But I think everything in life is teed up against that, right? <laughs> against you assuming like, oh yeah, he's the son of God. You would see them at their lowest moments. You would see them at their most foolish. You would be frustrated with them. Uh, you would know if, if, if your sibling was divine or not. And they were willing to die martyrs' deaths over the belief that their brother was the son of God, resurrected from the dead. Um, 17th century French mathematician, philosopher Blaise Pascal, he, he once wrote this, I only believe the stories of witnesses who get their throats cut. There's something there. Can someone die for a lie? Absolutely. But these people, the ones who even in their holy scriptures recorded themselves as the ones who thought the thing was over, they gave up, they were hiding out, they were not sticking faithful to Jesus and they thought the whole thing was done, except for these women. They came to say, no, I believe this, and as traditions correct, all of the 11 died martyrs' deaths over this belief that Jesus really was the resurrected Son of God. I think it's compelling. There's so much more we could say. There's so, much, so many ways you could poke at each one of these things, of course. I don't presume to get to the bottom of these, but I just, I just offer that in brief and say there's, there's more work to be done for all of us thinking through these things. But I guess to put a pin on this, it turns out, it turns out that accounting for how the early Christian movement began and exploded into this world-changing movement that has been found amongst nearly all tribes, tongues, and nations for 2,000 years, it's, it's very difficult to account for if Jesus didn't actually appear to many witnesses after his burial. You know, I came to faith as a kid. My mom, I remember my mom sitting in my mom's lap, I think I was four years old, praying with her. Uh, and her explained to me who Jesus was, what the cross was, and I, you know, when you come to faith as a kid, there's a lot of sorting out you have to do. When, when did I really believe what? Was it sincere? Was I just believing what my parents said or whatever? Um, but I, I believe now, as I've sorted through it, I think as a four-year-old, God met me there. And I didn't know much theology, as most four-year-olds don't, but I knew that Jesus loved me, I knew he had died for my sins, and I knew I trusted, I wanted to trust him. Um, and so I'm so grateful for that. But, but don't, don't let that, don't discount me, and I won't discount you either, uh, from, from, from the reality of this. The more I learn, and the more I reflect, and the more I wrestle, um, and the more facts I encounter, every day is a fresh opportunity to say, I don't believe this. God forbid I, I turn my back on this faith and on this Jesus, but a year from now, let's say, sorry, I'm not your pastor anymore, I don't believe this stuff anymore, good luck, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Like, we all have that opportunity every day, every single day. And maybe some of you have been in those seasons where you're like, I believe it. No, I don't so much right now. That's reasonable. That's life. But I just, I just plead with you not to dismiss me or any of your neighbors who've been walking with Jesus for a long time because every day is a choice. And every day, the actual weight of, of, of the world and what we're thinking about new information we've got and this and that, and oh, I read this interesting article or this book really challenged me or whatever. Is this Jesus stuff really, really real? And your answer might be no. But all I can say is today, 
today, the more I learn, the more I reflect, the more I wrestle, the more I'm left dumbfounded by the fact that I actually do think that Jesus was alive and then he was dead and then he was alive again and he's sitting at the right hand of God. I think that's the honest to God truth. And I could be wrong about that. But I don't think I am. I don't think I am. There are alternative stories, and they were there from day one. And they're well worth considering. And you should consider them. And see if Jesus doesn't meet you there in that wrestling. Okay. Third thing. Final section. This passage is often called the Great Commission. I will read this in full. So the 11 disciples, that's the 12 minus Judas, they did go to Galilee because the women, we know, women told them, hey, Jesus is going to meet you in Galilee. We've got a word from Jesus. We saw him in the flesh. Go see him in Galilee. So they did. They went to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks unpacking this passage, but very briefly, I just want to see a few things we see here. Because he has risen from the dead, here's some implications. Here's why this is such good news. First, Jesus is king, is the claim. It's not just that he was a guy who's through some fluke of history. You know, it, it, on, a, on a purely materialist worldview, you, you might say, well, yeah, I mean, the world's random and chaos and just like, you know, matter banging around to and fro. Weird things happen out there. After all, life began from non-life, remember? So yeah, maybe this guy just blipped back into existence. Who knows? Maybe stranger things have happened. But what this is claiming is not just that this is some random fluke of history, but that it means that he is the king. He's the one who is the recipient of worship, rightful recipient of worship. He's the one whom God the Father has given all authority. He's the one who is co-equal with the Father. He says, when you baptize people, do it in the name of the Father and of the Spirit and of me, the Son. He declares himself co-equal God. claims that he wasn't just a fluke of history, but he is the authoritative one who now carries the authority of God in his hands. So he's the king. And you know what? There is no one I would posit that you would rather have. And if you've spent any time reading through the gospels, the stories about Jesus, you almost can't help but be, it's the reason people are like, I hate Christians, but that Jesus seemed pretty cool. Why can't Christians just be more like it? You hear that all the time. Read about this Jesus. He's the one who comforts, he comforts the downtrodden. He weeps with those who weeps. He, the, those who are suffering in the deepest throes of suffering, he comes alongside and he comforts and he brings relief. Those who are sick, he heals. Those who are dead even, he raises from the dead as this preview of what he was going to do in his own life. Um, he's the one who uniquely brings in the outsider, the one who everyone else says, no, keep them at arm's length, keep them at arm's length. He says, no, bring them in close. These are actually the ones that my kingdom is for. He's full of grace and he's full of mercy. He's full of wisdom. You look around our politics and you're like, why can't, why can't any of our politicians like do any, <laughs> anything good? We elect evil, flagrantly evil ones half the time and the ones that seem okay, we're like, oh, they're just incompetent. Oh, it turns out they're evil too. You know, it's like, but he's the king. This Jesus, the one who holds the wisdom of God because he is God, who acts with no impartiality, doesn't favor one person over another unjustly. And you know what? He cares perfectly about justice, far deeper than we ever do, even when we're out screaming in the streets for it, which is a good thing to do. He cares far more about it. And he's merciful. Because in our, in our best moments, we know, if we're on all our screaming for justice, if we actually let that, that little magnifying glass turn back on us, we're guilty too. He's the God of perfect justice, but also perfect mercy and grace, self-giving love. So the fact that he's king, it's not just, okay, that's a cool fact. It is the best news we could possibly hear. The one who holds all authority is the only person we can trust with that authority. 
everyone else succumbs to it. It's like the, the ring in Lord of the Rings, you know? Frodo seems okay, but he's going to be a little goblin by the end of the thing. None of us can handle it, except for him, the one who laid down his life to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus is king. Number two, life overcomes death. Despite appearances, the meaning of the resurrection, the good news of the resurrection is that death does not get the last word. You've probably heard this in churches a million times, but I'll say this. If Jesus is dead and gone, if Jesus is dead and gone, he was an interesting teacher, he died, his believers made up some stuff about him or whatever, then we do nothing but waste our time by sitting around talking about him. Life is at bottom, it's just subatomic particles banging around to and fro until the eventual heat death of the universe. And despite the protestations of our best art and, you know, or whatever else, life is necessarily devoid of any meaning. It's devoid of any moral order. It's devoid of any love. Everything just burns up in the end anyway. But if Jesus died and rose again, then at the center of everything is a loving God with a good plan who won't allow death to have the last word. So there's genuine hope. The resurrection means that your life matters. It's not just random blips of, of atoms to and fro. Your life matters. Your life is cherished by a loving creator God of the universe. Your body matters. It's not just dissolved into nothingness, become stardust, whatever, until that too, that, those stars burn out too. Jesus had a new body, which means you will have a new body, a real physical body to enjoy, to use in a perfected, recreated world. It means that, it doesn't just mean that, it means that your pain matters. It's not just random synapses firing out to nothingness. There's a God who actually comes in close and weeps with you. He dignifies your pain. Your joy matters. Your relationships matter. Your relationships will be taken up again in the resurrection as well. All of this will be made complete when Jesus comes to put all things right. The Bible claims that human death entered the world as the consequence of our decision, of, of our first parents, Adam and Eve, their decision to reject God's rule. They, get, they made this decision to give themselves over what the Bible calls sin. But we could just as easily apply terms that make more sense to most of us. Evil, injustice, it's missing the mark. It's, 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 it's failing to live up to God's good design and plan. The wages of that sin is death. But the death of Jesus means that God opted to take those wages into himself, to receive the punishment, to do all that was necessary to cover the debt that we are owed and to restore anyone and everyone without distinction to intimate, loving fellowship with the God of the universe. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when God looks out on the wreckage all the wreckage that his people, his created people, have wrought in his good world, and there's a lot of wreckage. You have to bury your head deep in the sand to not see all the wreckage, all, this, all the ways we destroy one another in this world. When God looks out on that, there are at least two impulses that he feels. First is justice must be done, and thank God, thank, I mean, thank God that he cares about justice, amen? That when he sees suffering, he says, no, it will end. It will end. Justice must be done. You know what else he, he, he what the other impulse he feels? And mercy will be given. Which again, we need. We need desperately. And you know what? The cross was where he satisfied both of those. The judgment and justice of God not falling on the, everyone else, falling on himself taking it into himself that he might be able to give you his righteousness, his forgiveness, his goodness, his standing before the Father. And you can say, well, that's good intention, Jesus. That's really sweet that you went to the cross, you know, with all these lofty things in mind that you were going to be the, you know, the, one, the sacrificial lamb, all this stuff. You were going to be the one who took the justice of God on your back. You were going to be the one who offered us mercy, but you still died. But he raised from the dead. 
He raised from the dead. The resurrection is proof that it's not just wishful thinking. It's the real deepest thing about our universe. The Son of God has come into the world. He's died, but he's raised. It's the best news in the world. There is a God. He is good. And he actually has come and died and raised for you specifically because he was not content to be apart from you. Third thing we see here is that the invitation goes out to all. And we should probably spend more time than we're going to on this. But, but he says, you, here, here, disciples, all these things are true. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. And there's two things that involves. Baptizing them, that's seeing new people come into the faith, being identified with him in the waters of baptism, being welcomed into the family for the first time, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. That speaks to ongoing spiritual formation and discipleship and depth and spiritual maturity and all those things. Both, new people coming in and then people growing into maturity. But notice for now the scope, and that, those are our merging orders. That's what we're called to do as a church. But notice the scope of this, of all nations. The gospel doesn't just belong to any one skin color, ethnic group, national identity. It's good news for every tribe and tongue and nation. And he has made that a reality already, as we just already mentioned this morning. Like we are part of this global movement, uh, increasingly that, 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 looks, <laughs> that does not look like this room. Um, Western Christians um, are becoming the, the minority of Christians in the world. And I think that's a beautiful thing. We assume like Christianity is like this European, American, kind of white Western thing. Um, and it's not, it's not. It is made up of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation already. And it will continue to be increasingly that way until Jesus comes back in full. So the invitation goes out to all. There is no one who has to hear about this thing and go, well, that's not for me. It is for all. It is for all, all nations, including Portland in the U.S. of A. Okay, let's conclude. Let's conclude. So much more I would like to say about all of this, really, but you don't need that. The Christian scriptures, they put forward an impossibly good thought, I think. That there is a sovereign creator God of the universe. And you might hear that and your spine might, you might get a shiver up the spine because like, that sounds bad. That sounds scary. But the Bible claims that he's not a tyrant. He's not distant and he's not stoic. He's the source of all goodness and truth and beauty in our world and the reality is that every time you've encountered anything genuinely good, it's a dim reflection of who he is. It's a gift from the gift giver. He is the source of it all. The deepest beauty you've ever seen is a dim reflection of this God. And though every, <coughs> every one of us has on some level and at some point traded his goodness for evil, his truth for falsehood, his beauty for destruction. He still chose to freely give his only son that whoever might trust him would not perish but have eternal life. That knowing our deepest sins and our deepest injustice and our deepest failures and, you know, only I know mine, only you know yours, um, and however bad and however low we think we've been, it's only the creator, the omniscient creator God of the universe who actually knows the full depth of it all. He knows our depravity far more <laughs> than we ever could. But knowing that, he took all of the consequences into himself that we might not have to. And he freely offers you full forgiveness, genuine righteousness, and eternal life in his kingdom. All at the price of simply being morally perfect. No! That's what we assume. Like, oh, what do I have to do to earn that? He says, all at the price of simply trusting him, admitting I can't earn it. There's nothing I can do. I haven't earned it so far. Left to my own devices, I'll only give myself over more and more to the things that bring destruction in this world. Simply trust him. Simply believe, 
Faith, belief, trust, those are all synonyms, ways to translate that same Greek term in the New Testament. Believe. Throw yourself at his feet and trust that he's merciful. There's just mercy there. So Jesus has raised from the dead. And if that's true, everything's different. And you know, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In a moment, I'm going to ask all of us who will say it. If you don't want to say it, don't say it. But if you will say it, to declare Jesus is Lord together. And I would just say, if you're a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, as you confess this for however many, I hope you've confessed that many times, Jesus is Lord. However many times it's been, Remember today afresh that Jesus' resurrection life for you, it's for you, and that nothing can separate you from the love of God. If you feel distant from him, if you feel like, man, my Christian life is not what I thought it would be, if you're racked with shame and guilt and you feel isolated, you feel distant, you feel wishy-washy, whatever, you're struggling to believe, like the disciples who saw him, some worshiped them, but some doubted in that moment. Might be you today. Nonetheless, you can say Jesus is Lord with full confidence that he receives you. So you say it in celebration and in remembrance. And if you have never made a decision to trust Jesus, to turn to Jesus, to follow Jesus, but maybe this morning you're feeling your heart stirred a little bit. Maybe this morning you're like, I did not see this coming, but I'm actually kind of compelled by this Jesus stuff. Then you're invited to say it too. Even if you have a lot of questions, even if there's a lot that needs to get sorted out, you say it too. And trust that these glorious promises we've been talking about, including this resurrection hope, not just Jesus's, but for you, alive with him one day. And the new, new creation is for you to beginning now, tasted now. Yeah, thank you, Lord. And of course, if you do that, please, please share that with, with me or with someone else that we could follow up with you. Bow your head. Bow your head with me. Jesus, we stand on this promise that your spirit spoke through the Apostle Paul, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So today, we say it with you. Jesus is Lord. Say it with me. Jesus is Lord.